thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing our series uh, in the book of Daniel, and I've entitled our message, The End. Knowing how things end really makes a difference. Because when we know how something ends, it, it creates certainty. It minimizes suspense. It reduces worry and anxiety. I alluded to this uh, last week. It's a lot like <clears throat> watching a movie the second time. Nothing changes. So you relax a little bit more, especially if it's a movie that's got a lot of suspense. You, you know how it ends. You still sort of experience some of the anxiety throughout the movie because movies are really good at that. But at the end of the day, you know the ending, and so you're just not you know, quite on the edge of your seat as much. Now, every time I ask if everybody here has seen a movie, I'm extremely disappointed, so I thought I'd throw you a softball. Anyone seen The Sound of Music? Nobody. All right, The Sound of Music, Julie Andrews, okay, filmed in 1923. It's a joke. By the way, happy Canada Day, and did you see the other day, I watched this on a CNBC website, I believe it's owned by NBC in the States, Calgary's ranked the tied for number three place to live in the world. Not in Canada, in the world. All right. That was awesome. So did I get you back, those who were offended by the Julie Andrews? Okay, never mind. All right. But at the end of the movie, they get into Switzerland from Austria. They escape the Nazis. No matter how many times you see that movie, that's the end. And as you're watching it, even though you're a little concerned about whether or not they're going to get caught or whether Captain Von Trapp is going to show up for their musical at the end or whether he'll really know his parts, you can rest assured they're getting into Switzerland. It's going to be okay. The Battle of Midway, a key battle in the Pacific in World War II. If the Allied forces lose that battle, there's a good chance that North America is going to be invaded. At the end of that battle, three aircraft carriers from the Japanese are on fire, and it was the turn in the battle in the Pacific. I enjoy that movie a lot. There's some really neat things in that movie historically, but I know how it ends, but it was a key, critical point in the war. Gladiator, one of the greatest movies of all time. Great theology in Gladiator. Except, isn't everyone who's seen Gladiator disappointed, right? Who's seen Gladiator? Okay, never mind. Oh, okay, a few of you. That's awesome. Now you're just lying to make me feel good. <clears throat> Don't do that in church. It's not the place to do that. What are you disappointed in in Gladiator? Russell Crowe dies. I want him to marry Commodus' sister, and then they have like the super child who becomes the next emperor, right? Isn't that what you want? But at least I know I'll be disappointed every time I see it, because I know how it's gonna end. Man on Fire with Denzel Washington, one of the great man movies of all time. And in the end, Denzel Washington kills everybody connected with this kidnapping. And it feels so right, because they were all bad guys anyway. 
He just helped them meet God earlier. That's what he even says in the movie he's gonna do. You know how it's going to end. Knowing how things ends gives us a better today. It gives us a better tomorrow. Now I want you to think about something. Imagine trying to follow Jesus, but doing it without any confidence in the future. Without any indication from God about what's going to happen in the future. Without any prophecy about the end times, what would it be like following Jesus? Without the book of Daniel, without the book of Matthew or parts of it, without the book of Thessalonians, and without the book of Revelation. No prophecies, no predictions about the future. You're following Jesus, you believe in who he is, but you have no idea about tomorrow. Wouldn't your faith experience be a little bit different? How would you approach life? How would you approach faith? Well, I suspect you would worry a little bit more. I suspect you would struggle a little bit more. I I suspect you would sort of believe in Jesus, but rather than viewing him as the sovereign God of the universe, you'd be a little bit more like rooting for him. Like, I hope we win in the end. But you wouldn't really know. You wouldn't have any confidence. What if we get to heaven and God is incapable of defending its walls and its gates? We say, well, that's ludicrous. Well, the reason you believe it's ludicrous is because you have the scriptures telling you it's ludicrous. But what if we didn't have that? What if we didn't know the future? You see, we need to know how things end in order for our faith to work. That's why we have hope. It's why we have confidence. It's why we have faith. It's why we have certainty about certain things. God's promises, God's prophecies give us that. And none of them are more significant than Daniel. Daniel lays the foundation to, much of the, to many of the modern views of the end times, or what we call eschatology. Eschaton means the end. So study of the end. It's foundational to modern views of eschatology. It predicts events from about 550 B.C. to the end of the world as we know it. And in some cases, it is so shockingly specific, it screams God's sovereign control of history and of the future. Now, as we've been going through Daniel, we went through chapters one through six, those are stories from Daniel's life, stories that happened while he was alive. They're things that he was often involved in. He records them as sort of a narrator or historian. You get to chapters seven through 12, and things change. In chapters seven through 12, what you've got are sort of these dreams or visions that God gave Daniel. In fact, today we're gonna talk about one of them. We're skipping chapter eight. And the reason we're doing that is, some of you would say I'm too chicken to preach it, that's not the point. We're skipping chapter eight because much of it was already fulfilled. So chapter eight was a chapter in which uh, the predictions given to Daniel are about what's gonna happen in the Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire, and how Israel would be persecuted in the Greek Empire. So much of it ends in about 200 or uh, second century BC. There are a few allusions to the Antichrist in the future. When we get to chapter nine, this is the foundational passage for what most of us believe about the end times. And I want you to turn to Daniel chapter nine, it is on page 636, 
and page 637 in the Bible in front of you. And we're going to read the end of the chapter where the major prophecy takes place. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 20. Now while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening sacrifice. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Two things I want to point out here before we continue. First, this isn't a vision. It's in a section we call visions, but Daniel is praying, and Gabriel doesn't give Daniel a vision. Gabriel shows up and is in person talking about this vision. So it's not a vision of an angel. Gabriel's right there giving him this vision, if you will. Verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, so you got seven weeks, then 62 weeks, and the word weeks is really sevens is what it means. Weeks is misleading, sevens. After the 62 sevens, which have followed the first seven sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. All right, well that's a little bit hard to follow, but this is a foundational passage about the future. We're going to walk through what Daniel is receiving here. First, and this isn't the main point, but Daniel receives the promises of the future as he exercises faith in the promise of the past. Daniel here is in a little private prayer meeting, and he's actually praying about something God promised a while before. So the early part of this chapter, again, Daniel's praying. He's been in captivity since he was probably a late teenager, plus or minus a couple of years. We know he and many nobles from Judah were deported uh, into the Babylonian kingdom. They were going to be trained there. That hopefully would allow Israel to remain a vassal state and not rebel by sort of being friendly to them and deporting them and training them and keeping them in the palace service. Daniel had arisen in rank, and he has served in the courts of two world empires, Babylonia and Medo-Persia. He's an old man now. He's actually risen at one point to top three besides the king, probably top one, second only to the king at one point. But now he's an old man, and he wants to see God bless his home country. 
So Daniel actually knows about the prophecies of Jeremiah, who was not quite a contemporary necessarily, but maybe a little older than him, maybe a contemporary. He knows about Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 25 and in chapter 29. In those two places, Jeremiah predicted that Israel's captivity in Babylon would last 70 years. So God had said, you're going to be taken over by the Babylonians. There was a clear warning, but God put a limit on it. He said, 70 years, and then you're going to be able to return. Now, that to us would seem like a pretty simple math equation. You should just say, okay, when did the Babylonian captivity start? Uh, Add 70 years. Daniel should know when it's ending. The problem is Babylonians' deportation of the Jews happened two or three different times. 605 BC, 586, there might have been some before that. So Daniel doesn't know which date God is using in his calculations. So he's praying that God would maybe be gracious and wrap up this 70-year captivity maybe a little early and let his people go back to Israel. So that's what Daniel's praying about. That's the context here in Daniel chapter 9. He's doing a lot of confessing. And then he reminds God of his promises and his covenant, the treaty he had with Israel. And he asked God to turn his anger away from Israel and his favor towards Israel. And he asks about the city itself, the temple, as well as God's people. And you'll see in the prophecies we talk about, God talks about the people and the city and temple. This new prophecy will deal with both. What's going to happen to God's people What's going to happen to God's city? So Gabriel shows up mid-prayer. Daniel's not expecting that. It's often called a vision. It's really not. It's Gabriel in front of Daniel. It was a visit. My point here is Daniel had hope for the future because of this existing promise of God. He rested in God's willingness and power to fulfill that promise. God's history, a record of doing that, shaped his faith. And it shapes our faith as well. And we'll come back to that later in the apps. Second, here's the guts of this passage. 77s, or 490 of something, we're gonna say will take place before Messiah restores a perfect reign of righteousness. That's the promise here. Question is, what are these 77s? But 77s of something, 490 of something, when we do the math, are gonna take place before Messiah restores a perfect reign of righteousness. Now this looks like a glimpse into the immediate future, plus the coming of Messiah, plus the restoration of a perfect world. Sort of end times kinds of stuff. And it's one of the key prophecies in all of scripture. It is the basis of a whole theological perspective called premillennialism, and we'll talk about that a little bit more without the word, but I am a part of that. Most of you are probably a part of that. This passage sort of lays the foundation for what a lot of us believe. And the four key question, or the key question is, I should say, how specific are these promises? What is really being stated here? And there are four things we need to answer to know that. Stay with me, because it's going to get academic here. First, what is the scope of the prophecy? 
what's really being promised here, beginning to end, and then what is the nature of these 77s? What are they? Are they days, are they weeks, are they months, are they years, are they decades? And then when we try to figure that out, are there dates in history that work with these 77s that help us make sense of it? And then finally, what's already happened and what's in the future? Daniel 9.24, we have this statement. 70 weeks, and we're just gonna say sevens there because that's really the word. 70 sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city. See, Daniel's prayed about his people, he's prayed about the city and the temple to finish wrongdoing, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, sort of complete history and all of God's promises, and to anoint the most holy place, some restoration of the temple. So you see three negatives there, sort of the end of three negatives, to finish transgression, make an end of sin, that's a pretty big deal, clearly hasn't happened, to make atonement for iniquity, probably looking to the cross, and then three positives, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. Now, I would argue, I think when you look at that verse, it can easily be argued that this verse indicates nothing less than what I would call almost a new world order sometime in the future. These are fantastic statements that I think you'd agree we have not really experienced. This is more than just Jesus coming. This is sort of a new order being established in the end times. Sin will no longer rule on earth. The cross will deal with it. You see atonement there. And Christ's righteous standards are going to be established and prevail on earth. You see, to bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy place. This is big time stuff that hasn't happened. Some of it has. The atonement piece has happened. There's a reference to the cross here. So the second question we need to ask, when you look at the scope there, <clears throat> forgive me, the scope without the squeaky voice, when you look at the scope there, what is the nature of the 77s as potential units of time that predict these things? Are they days, are they weeks, are they months, are they years? Well, the Hebrew doesn't help us. The Hebrew basically is just units of seven, so 70 Units of seven would be the Hebrew. Weeks actually is a little misleading. It would have been better if the translators had just said 77s because weeks is incredibly misleading. But the Jews were used to units of seven in multiple parts of sort of their religious worship. So we have the seven-day sort of creation model, six days and then a day of rest, became what? Became the Sabbath concept. So they're used to this unit of seven when it comes to days. Did you know that they also had a unit of seven when it came to years? So every seven years, you would let, you know, if you were a farmer, what'd you do? You like had a sabbatical. 
Every seven years, you let the land rest. Now, it was good for the land, but it also was sort of this expanded Sabbath concept. So they're used to these sevens, units of sevens, uh, I believe every, I want to say 49 years, if you were like a slave in those cultures, you were completely set free. Land went back to the original title holder. So if you were literally, uh, you know, sort of selling off your farm, you were only selling it off for a number of years until that it came back to the family owner at a certain point. So the price would be adjusted based on that. So they had a lot of these sevens built into their system, some based on 49 years or seven sevens, some based on seven years, some based on seven days. Everyone would agree that days make no sense here. In light of what's been predicted, in light of what we were looking at, this this massive change in the world order, years do make more sense. But then the question is, are these years really specific, or are they sort of just indefinite periods of time, but we use the word years, or are they literal years? Now, if you're going to believe And if I'm going to prove in any way that these are literal years, you've got to make a couple of sort of decisions. First one's pretty easy. You have to make a hermeneutical choice. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. We apply sort of interpretive rules to Scripture just like you do when you read a book. You don't think about it, but when you read a book, you're applying interpretive rules. Your brain naturally does it, logic, etc. But you make a hermeneutical choice, and that choice is this. Simplest rule of hermeneutics. When the plain sense of scripture makes sense, seek no other sense. All right? You're never gonna forget that, and it wasn't very deep. When the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Everything else in here, the 70-year captivity that God talked about, that Daniel's praying about, that's literal, and that's exactly what happened. Why would we not look at this as years? The second issue, and this is the bigger one, The years have to make sense with the events of history, or else God was wrong, or we just haven't figured out what this means. So then the third issue, does history coincide with 490 years, or 77s, in some way? And to determine that, we need to determine the dates in history when these things have happened. Do the dates work? Daniel 9, uh, 25. You are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, so we gotta find out when that was, until Messiah the Prince, until Messiah shows up, we gotta figure out when that was, there'll be seven weeks, 49 years, and 62 weeks, 434 years, I believe. It will be built again with streets and moats even in times of distress. All right, so we've got these two numbers, seven sevens or 49 years if they're years, and 62 sevens or 434 years. Stay with me. Does anything coincide with that? All right, well, here's a few options. Actually, why don't we throw up the next slide so we can follow this a little bit better. Starting point options. Cyrus, leader of the Medo-Persian emperor, made a decree. So this is still in Daniel's lifetime, probably. First decree was that people could go back to Jerusalem. Now, I believe this largely had to do with temple reconstruction. And so in 537 B.C., 
people were allowed to return to Israel from the Medo-Persian Empire. And if you want to see a verse for that, you just go to Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. The book of Ezra is based on this, being able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Well, a while after that, quite a while after that, Artaxerxes made a decree. In 457 B.C., he said that people could go back to Jerusalem. It was a major historic event. That's in Ezra chapter 7. So it's a lot later in time. Ezra talks about that as well. And then you have another degree from this same king Artaxerxes in 445 that's listed in Nehemiah, where it says, Nehemiah, you can go back to the city and you can do what? Anyone remember? Rebuild the walls, right? So part of the city. So you've got these three decrees from pagan kings who have Israel in captivity saying you can go back at these various times in history. So we've got a little bit of a problem here is this just isn't one event. We've got three different options. But they're all legitimate options because none of them are so clear in the text that we know exactly everything that's being rebuilt in Jerusalem at the time. So we've got three options there to make this work. Not ideal, but three. Now what are the possible end dates? When Messiah the Prince comes, when would we view that as taking place? Well, one option would be, I think we'd all agree, Messiah came when he was what? Born, all right? Mary and Joseph, little Jesus in a manger. That's one option. And we believe that was like five or four BC. You'd think that's at zero, but evidently throughout church history, we got it wrong. Couldn't figure out when Jesus was born. Somebody was, somebody was doing this work on a Friday afternoon right before work was out. They were doing the calendar and they got it wrong. So 5 to 4 BC, we believe Jesus was born. Another event would be Jesus' baptism or the beginning of his messianic ministry when he's presenting himself as Messiah and that would be 27 AD, according to scholars. The third option would be when Jesus actually, the triumphal entry a week before his death, and he's saying I'm the Messiah to everybody very, very publicly in his actions. So we've got three beginning dates, and we've got three potential end dates. And there are a couple other factors that make this a little more complicated, or a little more cool if you're still with me. All right? Let's go for that. All right? Stay with me. Two other factors to keep in mind. Do you remember when, <clears throat> do you remember when, do you remember when Daniel wrote that there would be seven sevens and then 62 sevens? You, you have to wonder, why did he break that up? Why did he break up that 69 weeks into two? Does something unique happen after the first 49 years? Because the way he gives the prophecy, there's going to be seven sevens, then 62 sevens, and then one seven. It all adds up to 490 years, but he doesn't just say there's going to be 490 years. So is there something that happens after the first seven sevens? Keep that in mind. And the second issue, for those of you who are astronomers or follow the calendar and understand how it was created, who look at the lunar phases and judge, you don't look at a calendar, you just look at the moon and tell your wife or your husband, hey, I think it's the 15th of the month based on where the moon is. Well, that's how they used to have to figure this stuff out. So there's a whole group of people who figured out how long a year is by looking at constellations, the moon, stars, etc. So the question is, at that point in history, were they looking at 365-day solar years, like we do, 
Or were they using 360-day prophetic years? Like sometimes in the scripture, you'll, you'll talk about months as 30 days. Well, months aren't all 30 days. You gotta get those extra days in. Months of 30 days gives us 360 days. And when you're doing many, 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 many years, that messes things up. So some scholars think, well, they were 360-day years. And the seasons must have gotten pretty messed up then, right? But all of these ancient cultures actually added extra days. So they would go, a month is 30 days, but then sometime in the year or every few years, they'd make it all up. So they knew that years were 365 days. They did know that, and they all had a makeup option. So we're gonna assume that Daniel's prophecy, like ancient cultures, they actually knew how long a year was, 365 days. Now, you still with me? Raise your hand. About half of you, and the rest of you haven't seen any movies that I talk about either. All right. All right. With that in mind, you're looking at your options there. Let me give you a little math that works. Artaxerxes' decree of 457 B.C., right in the middle there, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild, or to go back to Jerusalem. If you take 49 years from that point, you get to 408 B.C. That's the first set of sevens. There'll be seven sevens, then 62 sevens. The first seven, 408 B.C. Do you know that in 408 B.C., Jerusalem's walls, streets, and moats were completed? Right about that time. Isn't that interesting? Then take 408 B.C., the completion of Jerusalem. It's now secure. And minus, or add, since you're coming from B.C. towards A.D., the 434 years, or the 62 additional sevens he mentions, and you know what you get to? 26 AD. Isn't that interesting? You say 26 AD, you said 27 up there. Well, that's because when you're doing addition from BC, there is no year zero. You know, there was nobody walking around saying, you know, it's June 3rd, zero. They didn't do that. They went from June 3rd, 1 BC, to June 3rd, 1 AD. So you add another year, and you get to AD 27, which is the year that Jesus, as Messiah, was baptized and began his ministry as Messiah. Daniel 9, 25, again, we're gonna go back to that passage. So you are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 457 BC, until Messiah the Prince, 27 AD, there will be seven weeks after which Jerusalem was completed and 62 weeks, another 434 years. And at that point, now we're referring back to the 408 BC, it'll be built again with streets and moat even in times of distress, which are talked about in the book of Nehemiah. Daniel's wondering about God's promises. Is God going to fulfill his promise? Is he going to you know, help Israel go free after the 70 years that he told Jeremiah about? And based on the decree that Gabriel gave to him, God has it all planned out to the year and in God's heart to the, mind, to the month and to the day. The math works perfectly. There's no reason to not view these 
as God telling Daniel, just like he had predicted the four kingdoms that would be a part of his life and the future, out of which Messiah would come, out of the fifth king, or out of the fourth kingdom, out of the Roman Empire, just like God predicted that in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, God is telling Daniel, oh, by the way, 483 years from now, Messiah is going to be walking the earth. You want to know about your people? Let me tell you what's going to happen with your city and your people. In 483 years to the year, you will have your Messiah. Well, that's the guts of that. And then, third point, the final seven, or this final seven years, awaits the world. A time of terrible difficulty before a reign of righteousness. Now remember, he's given us 49 years, seven, then 62, 434 years, and all the math works to get up to 27 AD. And then he talks about this last week, and he separates it. He separates it in in the text as well. Now there's a clear break between that 69th and 70th week. There wasn't a break between the first seven and 62, but there is a break here, because he talks about some things that are gonna occur before that week takes place. Verse 26, here's what he mentions there. Oh, I don't have a slide for that. I'm looking for them and there is no slide. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. So after 27 AD, at some point, doesn't say it's during the 70th week, after that, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. So Daniel, your perceptions of a Messiah coming and ruling the world are not going to be exactly as you expect. The Messiah is going to be cut off in some way. Well, that seems to refer to his death. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now we've got another world figure coming on the scene. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now he talks about the city being destroyed, which is interesting. Do you know when Jerusalem was destroyed? After the 69th week in AD 70, Jerusalem was basically leveled, I think to the point where they could take a plow over the temple area. It was demolished by Rome. Now remember, this is about Israel. It's not about the world. It's about Israel. We, we, We are affected by it, but this is... God telling Daniel what's going to happen to his people and his city. So this Messiah is going to die, A.D. 30. The city is going to be destroyed, A.D. 70. Which, by the way, Jesus also predicted in Matthew. He refers to this and talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Then verse 27. And he, some figure, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, some evil ruler who lies and makes a covenant and breaks it. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So somebody's going to come then and destroy this evil ruler. So at this point, at some point in the future, Israel's temple will have been rebuilt. There's some sacrificial system. These will be Jews who believe in Jesus, according to this passage. They believe in Jesus, so these sacrifices are going to be sort of memorial, like we do in communion. A world ruler will create a treaty with Israel. We would call this figure the Antichrist. Daniel has already mentioned him in chapters before this. 
Paul mentions him in Thessalonians. John mentions him in Revelation. Three and a half years into this treaty he makes with Israel, he will break it and he will try to destroy God's people until he is destroyed by Messiah and the reign of Christ will be ushered in, the reign of Christ that was promised earlier in the chapter. Multiple other biblical authors speak to these events. There's no reason to not take them literally. The first 483 years came true to the day, basically, or to the year. Just a couple apps before we close. First, God has the future in his hands. When, when I look at stuff like this and I study it, and this is not the funnest chapter to study. I mean, it, it's, it's, an, it's not the easiest thing to walk through. I try to make it easy. It is not the easiest thing to walk through. I think we'd all agree. But the specificity of it is shocking because if God is predicting things like this in the ancient world and they come true to the year, it shows God's control over the future. You know, in the last couple of weeks we've talked about whether that's good or bad. And we all think it's good, just like knowing the end of a movie is a good thing or we have a lot of uncertainty, but we tend to blame God a lot. God's got control of history, evil's in the world, why do things happen the way they happen? We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. So my second point is God's plan is being worked out in enemy territory. And I think this is a good way to look at this because if we don't have the right foundation of our theology, we kind of get messed up. You know, not long ago down in Florida where many people flee for the winter, Arizona, Florida. Down in Florida, there was a condo that collapsed. Some of you saw that on the news? Like a condo building. It was, it was just tragic. I'll read a little bit about it. June 24th, 2021. So this is about a year ago. Part of a slab from a high-rise condo building in Surfside, Florida, dropped into the parking garage below. Within minutes, the east wing of a 13-story tower collapsed. 98 people were killed. There's nothing else like that in the U.S. in modern history where this is just a building failing and falling. Designed in the late 70s, 136 unit Champlain Tower South was completed in 1981 and marketed as luxury living, except it's gonna fall in on you. Officials are still investigating why the tower fell. Engineers point to some key decisions during construction that, while legal at the time, compromised the building's foundation. And so they go back and forth about what the engineers did wrong. And of course, the condo board knew a few things and they didn't act on it. Almost 100 people died because there wasn't a firm foundation under their lives. Well, that's kind of the way Scripture is. If we, if we don't have a firm foundation of how we're to view certain things, we really get off base. And it's one of the things that goes on with our criticism of God. We've got a sovereign God who's overseeing a world that we don't approve of. And it's the major reason for unbelief in the world today. How can we have a good God? How can we have a sovereign God? And yet all this bad stuff happens in the world. Here's the way I want you to look at that. It is true that God is in control, but it's also true until the ultimate reign of Christ that Daniel refers to, which has not happened. This is enemy territory. This is kind of enemy territory. Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world. Jesus and Paul both referred to Satan that way. God is sovereign, but this is enemy territory. 
I was watching recently World War II in color. I'm not even going to ask if anyone else saw that. World War II in color is actually a fascinating historical uh, rendition of World War II. A lot of it's, it's real footage. It's narrated. It's not a movie. It's, it's a series. And it's just fascinating. And the lives that were lost. And there was a whole thing on Dunkirk where, where the British had landed so many soldiers behind enemy lines. And then things didn't go as well as planned. And they're stranded on the beach. They're getting strafed by, by German planes and so on. And there was this great rescue of everyone's fishing boat and yacht and ships. You know, they came and got those hundreds of thousands of British soldiers or, all, or else... Germany would have occupied Britain in no time. They wouldn't have rescued that army. Italy, Italy was taken over by the Nazis. Obviously, they had a friend there, uh, Mussolini, and, and the Americans were trying to take that part, and they suffered losses that were just horrific. They didn't expect it. It was a terrible part of the war. The Pacific Islands, were, the Japanese were dug in an incredible way, engineering feats as they dug caves through some of those, some of those uh, mountainous areas. And, and when we were trying to retake those areas, it, you know, the enemy was dug in. The, the, it's like the whole world was mined. And I think that's a good way to look at God in our world. Satan is the prince of this world. God is a sovereign God, but he's allowed this period of time where basically the world that we operate in as people of faith is kind of mind. And there's this battle for territory. And God's plan is being worked out in that kind of territory. Third, our faith is built on a history of God doing exactly what he promised. Daniel is coming to God in faith, asking God to fulfill this to fulfill his promise and rescue his people after 70 years. And, and he had faith because of what God said. And we're supposed to have faith because of what God said to us. Daniel chapter 2, God predicted to Daniel the next four world empires and the coming of Messiah. Did the same thing in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 8, he's talking about the persecutions that are going to happen to Israel in the second century B.C., in Daniel chapter 9, he talks about when Messiah is going to come, when Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and to the year he predicts it. If all that is true, why wouldn't we take God's word on the last seven years that are to come? Our faith is built on the fact that we've got a God who keeps his word. And throughout history has made some things very clear a long time ago about the future and kept his word. And so we believe he will continue to do that. We believe Jesus will come again. We believe Jesus will establish his reign on this earth and we will have a world that is restored to what God intended. As I pray, we're gonna have the worship team come back up here and uh, those who are gonna help serve communion and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. God, we thank you for your word. And Father, I'm, I'm amazed as we look at your word here that this all works out. I'm not amazed that you keep your word. I'm just amazed at the specificity of your promises. That you saw into the future and you determined that that's what was going to happen and you made it so. And in our hearts, we, we sometimes are frustrated with that because we see a God who can do whatever he wants, who, who controls the future, and, and our world sometimes doesn't look like you do that. But we recognize that this world is not a time 
when righteousness has been restored and Jesus reigns in it. It's a time where you are influencing the world and so is the evil one. It's not a time where sin has been eradicated. It's been atoned for on the cross, but the world is broken. And we look forward to a time when you will come again and make all things right. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on the first Sunday of the month, we celebrate communion as is our custom, as the scripture commands us. What's interesting is, throughout my life, and probably especially when I was younger, it's always like, why do we, why is communion so, you know, kind of a down time? Why aren't we just celebrating the resurrection? Because that's like the big event. That's what made it all work for us. Without the resurrection, we don't have eternal life. And it's because God doesn't want us to skip the step before the resurrection. Because that's where our sin was dealt with. The movie The Passion was highly criticized. You know, all the gore and the blood. I haven't seen that movie more than a couple of times in my life, but I think it was actually quite accurate. That by the time Jesus was done being flogged, he knelt in a pool of blood spatter that probably went out five, 10, 20 yards. Historians say that during a flogging, you could sometimes see a person's organs through their back. People died during floggings, or they would die on the crosses soon after. It was meant to be a killing event. And so when Jesus was sentenced to death, the Romans used crucifixion, which they had learned from other cultures before them. Couldn't do it to actually a Roman citizen. Could only do it to a slave or an outsider. And they chose to do it to Jesus. And that's actually what we celebrate during communion, is the fact that Jesus' body, Jesus' blood was shed, his body was broken because that was the way he atoned for our sin. Somebody had to die in our place. And he was the only one who was a perfect candidate because he was without sin. He took our place. Our custom of communion is we have open communion. After I pray in a few moments, you can just come forward as soon as you would like and you can take the bread and the cup and just uh, take them back to your seat and just hold them for a few moments and then we will take them together. Jesus, we're so grateful for your willingness to come into this world, to walk among us, to give up the glories of heaven with a focus, not on yourself, but a focus on what needed to happen to rescue a lost humanity. You alone could die for us. It was always your mission. The disciples wanted to talk you out of it. Even in the garden, you had concerns about it. And you said, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me. But you knew there wasn't the way. You were the way. Thank you for your willingness to suffer and die, to rescue me, to rescue everyone in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect 
or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.